Welcome to another episode of Conduct Detrimental. They say that timing is key. The day that we sit down and record with Don, Seth, and Tisha, that episode gets put out to the public. Dan Snyder announces that he is selling, or at least exploring, selling the team with Bank of America. Landis Barber, my guest today. What's up, buddy? Hey, how you doing? It's good to be back. Been a while. It has been a while, no shortage of sports law stories, and we're certainly riding high on our episode yesterday, and it was released today, but it's pacing to be one of our best episodes in terms of downloads of all time, so we thank you for listening to that. If you have not, I'd highly recommend that you go back and listen to it. A little bit of a story, Landis, after we had Don and uh, Seth and Tisha, they said you might want to pay attention to the story, something, you know, uh, something's coming down. So I saw the news in the morning, I'm like, okay, they must have known that Snyder was going to sell. And that was not, I think, that they what they were insinuating, because the story is broken by uh, Don Van Natta on ESPN. He has the story that the Fed's investigating that sources confirmed to ESPN. So we're going to have a guest on the show, Matt Timpanic, our resident district attorney, who's going to break down the ins and outs of the federal prosecution. I don't want to say prosecution, federal investigation and the likelihood that it will lead to a prosecution and the time frame entailed, what they're actually investigating. So we'll get into that. But Landis, our roadmap for today, we got a lot. We're going to talk a little bit about Dan Snyder selling. I'm sure it's going to come up. A little Michigan, Michigan State, the incident that happened in the tunnel now on Saturday and what has transpired since then with the lawyers, Major League Baseball with a big win in court in the minor league baseball case. And then a little bit of Kyrie Irving. What's going on in the Nets saga? How have you been, though? You and I haven't spoken a little bit. I know it's been quite a while since we spoke. All things have been well here in Raleigh. We're back in hurricane season, both literally and figuratively with the Carolina Hurricanes. But all is well here as we're heading into the winter. How have you been? I've been good. I've been good. New job. People keep asking me how the new job's going. It's great. And there's really not much to say. I have a lot of things to say, but, you know, so far so good. I think I think they say like your first three months you have rose-colored glasses and then and after that, you figure it out. But so far, you know, I have no issues. I've I've certainly loved it. Let's jump right into it. And, you know, I'm sure topics today, we're going across really almost every sport. Let's start with Dan Snyder. The news today that Dan Snyder is selling. We're going to save the federal prosecution stuff for when we bring on Matt. Here's where my head kind of goes. Why does Dan Snyder announce that he's selling the team today of all days? Because he probably knew this was coming down. He probably did. So the question is, you know, let's hold the prosecution stuff for Matt. But the question is, is Dan Snyder selling 100% of the team? Landis, I'll, I'll let you give your kind of projections here. You think he's selling 100%, 0%, or some amount uh, that would represent a majority share, but he's still maintaining some minority percentage? I don't think he wants to sell 100% of the team. I think he wants to remain, you know, at least majority owner. However, the issue is who wants to become a part of that? Who wants to be a, become a part of that show, especially with what came down tonight that the commanders are being investigated? And I know Matt to panic. We'll get into more of that. But, but really... I think he's going to have a problem with people wanting to be involved in that and be involved in that show. And thus, I think he will be forced to wind up selling a majority of the team, if not 100% of the team. Forbes had the tweet that picked up a lot of traction, like Dan Snyder's hires Bank of America to sell the Washington Commanders. That part is accurate. The Washington Commanders, I think, official account tweeted that statement out from Dan Snyder, you know, and Tanya Snyder. But the problem is, if you read the fine print of the Forbes article, what they were getting sourcing on is that he might just sell a percentage of the team. So let's see. Again, we can talk about whether he's going to be forced to sell or not. We've done that on previous episodes. I will say there's one kind of complicating factor here that I think, and we'll see what the fans are. I mean, I read I read the Twitter replies. I try to get the sentiment. There are people saying today that there is more work to be done on Snyder. And even if he sells, 
like 80% of the team and he keeps 20% for him and Tanya and his family, whatever else. There's still a world where people are still unhappy with him attached anywhere to the team. Would that matter for an owner controlling, you know, majority share in the team? Maybe not, but it would matter the extent that that 20% share owned by Dan Snyder, this hypothetical share might prevent public financing to come from some of these stadiums. That's uh, according to, you know, a number of reports. I'm not, I'm not sure who got it. I think it was actually ESPN report. But they said that the reason that these public, you know, these stadium beings publicly financed fell through is because of all these constituents reaching out to politicians and saying mm-hmm. that they were going to have a riot if any money, uh, you know, any taxpayer money was going to the commanders while Snyder owned them. So I would imagine that applies if he's the minority owner or the majority owner. And right now he's the 100 percent owner of the team. So the question is, if Snyder was like, yeah, I'll sell. 90%, also 80%, 90% of the team. Would someone like a Jeff Bezos, who owns the Washington Post, who makes a ton of sense here, would he say, uh, you know, I'm comfortable buying 90%? Or, right, would he tell his friends in NFL circles, kick Snyder out, force him to sell 100%, and then I will come in, I will drop my wallet on the table, and I'll write you a blank check. So reports are the Forbes valuation of the team as, I think, like 5.7 billion as of today. Could Bezos write a check for like 6 billion and just say, call it an even six, call it an even seven? I think there's going to be a fight here. I still feel inclined to think that Snyder's going to fight. He's not going to give up 100% just willy nilly. It's just not his personality. No, I don't, I don't see him wanting to give up 100%. I think I'm, I think he wants to retain some of it. I mean, this is some of his, this is his organization. This is what he's built. But it's interesting you bring up Bezos there. I mean, Bezos is a person that could actually just put a ridiculous amount of money on the table that makes him say, see you later. You know, I'm out of here. So. It was funny. Well, I'm like, I'm pretty sure, I didn't know how much Bezos is worth. I was just doing some quick Googling while we we're on. And I'm like, I said it. I'm like, could he do $6 billion? I'm like, sure. Jeff Bezos is worth about 120 billion. So he could drop 10 billion on the table and not really feel it. And then, you know, we look back next year, he's already made up 10 billion in Amazon stocks. So yeah, I think the NFL is going to, you know, they're going to want to take their time with this. Somebody asked me today, I was on, uh, I was doing Detroit sports radio and they asked me, you know, will the NFL want to inject some diversity in, in their NFL ownership with whoever takes over? And I said, they might want to do that. But if Dan Snyder is the one controlling the terms of the sale, He's going to have a lot of say in who the next owner of the team is. But if the NFL takes that over with, with respect to a for sale and they force the sale and they get to pick you know, who, who gets to take over. Yeah, uh, it's a much, much higher percentage chance of that happening. Could Bezos be good for the NFL? Sure. But I'm sure the any number of people, as long as they have the money to spend. Yeah, I could certainly see that. But for those that are sitting here wondering, like, it, are we going to have a mechanism where Dan Snyder is forced to sell? Yeah, certainly. As a 100% owner of the team as he is right now, yes, he could be forced to sell. If he's a minority owner, I looked up 8.13 today of the NFL's bylaws, still a minority owner could be forced to sell. There's also a world here, a story we covered about a year and a half ago, where Dan Snyder was fighting with his minority owners of the team and he ended up buying them out. Maybe there's a world where Dan's just paying too much money to attorneys right now fighting this thing, that he's just trying to recoup that money back. But give the team back to minority owners but under favorable terms that they can't uh, disparage him and everything else. So there's also a world where this is really just a boring financial transaction. And Snyder is, is going to give back the financial, the minority shares to other people, but put that money back in his pocket, but selling it maybe at a higher valuation because the team has certainly gone up in the last year. I mean, I completely agree there. The interesting thing, I just keep thinking about Bezos and I'm wondering if every commander's game would then be on Amazon Prime video. I mean, that's all we would be watching is commanders and Amazon Prime. Uh, But it's something to follow. And it's something, especially with this investigation just getting underway, it's something that the NFL should be paying attention to and will be paying attention to. And I'm sure we'll hear more about it 
as the season goes on. And I'm sure Commanders fans will be hearing a lot about it on Sunday. Let's stick in, in the theory of teams being sold or lost. Let's go with that theme. A couple uh, months ago, we had Jim Quinn on this podcast to talk about a lawsuit who was filing on behalf of certain contracted minor league baseball teams against Major League Baseball, alleging a theory of antitrust that these teams were cut because of illicit practices by Major League Baseball. So, Landis, you recently put an article out for our site, also for your site. You want to fill us in on the latest update on that front? Yeah, so these four minor league teams had sued the MLB, just like you said, as they were left out of the Professional Development League when the MLB cut minor league affiliates down to 40 teams, a certain number per team. And the Major League Baseball filed a motion to dismiss. And this last week, actually, it came back that the motion to dismiss was granted. And the judge, Andrew Carter Jr., ruled that... Until Congress or the Supreme Court of the United States overturns antitrust exemption, it still exists. And all of these actions were done within the business of baseball. Thus, he granted the motion to dismiss because the antitrust exemption applies. I want to say, do we expect this? I mean, we were, you and I were talking offline about Jim Quinn's a friend of ours. So uh, we, there's probably another world where you know, I'm certainly not going to call Jim up today. I'm like, hey, you want to come on the podcast, talk about how you lost. But, you know, you had found his, his comments in The Athletic that signified a, a different attitude than I was expecting. Let's put it that way. Yeah, it seems like Jim Quinn and, and the teams are a little bit, I don't know that they're excited about this ruling, but it's something they can work with because they want to focus on overturning that antitrust exemption. And Andrew Carter's ruling, Judge Andrew Carter's ruling was all about the antitrust exemption and how it applies in this case. So they seemed, you know, eager to get to work to appeal this ruling and focus on the antitrust exemption, which there has been some support for it. You know, you got the Senate Judiciary Committee looking at it and you got other senators looking at it. So there has been some support for looking at this exemption and could it make it to the Supreme Court in the next few years? Possibly. I'm only laughing. We did this for like the Deshaun Watson stuff and the day that Deshaun Watson got indicted. You know, Rusty Harden's like, we've been waiting for this day. We love that. Like, not that he got indicted. He's going to get put up to the grand jury. But like, we're, we're so excited for this. And I'm like, who would say that? Like, who is excited to be put in front of a grand jury? You know, so I guess it's not the best example because Rusty Hart ended up being right. It ended up being like an insane gamble. But one that you listen to the reporting there, it seems like Rusty Harden was talking to uh, the prosecution's office a lot. I think there was some comments back from Busby. How are they talking? You know, how, yeah, why are they talking so much and, and vice versa? But, but yeah, that's the latest really on that. I don't really have anything else to add. You know, if Jim says it's a good thing for him, Jim is just far smarter than you or I. So I don't know if he's, if he's happy that this happened, you know, so be it. Yeah. I mean, and if you overturn the antitrust exemption, you've changed minor league and major league baseball um, tremendously. So you've literally changed the trajectory of minor league and major league baseball. So Maybe he is excited. Maybe this is where they want to go. And even though nobody seems excited after losing a motion to dismiss, but the appellate courts, it looks like they'll be figuring it out in the appellate courts here soon. We covered a little bit of football, a little bit of baseball. Let us move over to basketball. The story uh, of Kyrie Irving is a troublesome one. He's been in the news, you know, in, in years past for being a, someone that is a believe that the earth was flat for a period of time. I'm not sure if he's an anti-vaxxer or not, but he just didn't want to get the the vaccine for whatever reason, and now making headlines, you know, for for making uh, anti-Semitic comments, or we'll say supporting a movie that made anti-Semitic comments, and not really issuing any type of retraction. And this comes, Landis, like a week after the Kanye saga. So you would think 
an athlete or celebrity or someone like that is is going to be mindful with those type of conversations and the blowback it could have. We were talking about Kanye losing out on hundreds of millions of dollars for making those type of comments. And then, you know, all of a sudden we have Kyrie. I don't know, he's on pretty shaky ground with the Nets as is. So obviously these comments come as a surprise. Latest, I guess I'll give you a softball here. What do you think of Kyrie's future with the Nets? That's a tough one to figure out right now, what Kyrie's future with the Nets is. I mean, the Nets organization, you're talking about an organization. What are they going to do with him? Who's going to take him on? Organizations appear like they're going to stay away from Kyrie Irving, and they're not going to get involved in that. But, you know, when he's on the court, look at what the offer was for Deshaun Watson. Look at what the offer was for other athletes. When he's on the court, he's one of the best in the game. And unfortunately, that's the way it is. And if he can get fans in the stands, if he can get Nets um, to the championship, then it appears that the Nets are going to are going to deal with that because maybe the market's not as good out there for him and other teams don't want to get involved in that. That's just the way it is right now. That's the way the sports are going. And it, it is unfortunate But the Nets are, are focused on trying to build the best team. Uh, I'm not sure that that is the right route to go, but but it is what it is. It's the route they're going. Here's the legal part of it. Kyrie basically signed a one-year deal. He's opted into, I think it was his player option, $36.5 million for, for the current season. So it's a one-year deal. It's a ton of money to be playing to be paying somebody. Obviously, Kyrie has never really been an issue on the court when he's playing. He's always been somewhat productive or, or very productive. We'll give him credit for that. But yeah, I mean, these these type of comments, like Joe Sy, the Nets owner, spoke out. And we spoke about it in my class on Monday night. And, you know, we had some people pretty adamant, like Kyrie shouldn't be playing. You had people at the Nets games wearing like fight anti-Semitism shirts. And you had Joe Sy, the owner, speak out and just say these comments are unacceptable. So you said it correctly. Like, I don't think Kyrie's future is with the Nets. I think he's once he's once this year is over, I think he's gone. They just fired Steve Nash. I say they mutually had a mutual walk with Steve Nash yesterday. They're bringing in Ime Udoka, which is, a you know, I guess, reportedly rumors. They're in, indicating that they're probably going to bring him in. Ime Udoka, obviously the former Celtics coach who has his own issues, which we'll get into to the extent that he is hired. You know, Kevin Durant calling for Steve Nash's job over the summer. Sean Marks, the GM, has his own issues. Then you have Ben Simmons on the team. It's like, I, I don't, I can't understand. Like, the, the Nets are just signing up for all these controversies. Like, I mean, it just, it's it's a horrendous look that Kyrie, and there's really no punishment that comes of it. You'd expect some type of sincere apology or something like that. But, you know, Kyrie's taking a, a page uh, out of Kanye's book he's just he's just kind of rolling with the punches at this point and you know I, I was listening to Bill Simmons podcast today with Roger Bell and they were saying that the Nets had made all these attempts to trade Kyrie but at this point no one's going to want him now right it's just a, a nuclear asset you're taking yeah. on a one-year deal anyways so yeah well we'll talk I'm sure it's going to come up on our podcast at some point Josh Primo who was the Spurs player who just cut former uh, 12th overall pick in the in the draft he just got cut from his team he's a guy that cleared waivers but Twelfth overall pick, some allegations, which I'm sure we're going to talk about at some point in the podcast, but him exposing himself to, to people, Spurs cut bait. But why do I bring him up here? Because it's another toxic asset. Like, you don't want that person. Maybe back in the day, like, I remember when I grew up, Linus, how old are you before I... Before I yeah, I'm 28. Okay, you're not that much younger than me. Do you remember the, we called the Portland Jailblazers? You ever hear that term? Yeah, I have. There was a time where the where Portland and the NBA just kept they kept having all these players with various issues, and they would keep them on the team. But now in this day and age, you have someone that has these conflicts, you can cut bait with them, right? Matt Ariza with the Bills, you talk about Primo with Spurs, and Kyrie. Like, you keep doing stuff like this. Yeah, obviously, you're paid a ton of money. I think the Nets are kind of, like, stuck with him for the year because he's tied to Durant uh, and all this stuff. So my viewing of Ime Udoka impending signing, we'll say, is, like, 
listen, Udoka's got going to be on a couple months to prove it. Kyrie's going to prove it. Let's all put these like toxic assets all together and they can all figure it out. Like never in the history of sports has that been a recipe for success, but like, uh, you know, let's see what happens here. Yeah. It appears to be the route the Nets are going to take. Yeah. Let's get all of these toxic assets together with each other. Ben Simmons who forgot how to play basketball. Like let's get them all in a room and let's figure it out. I, I think in a world, like if we did this last year, Ime Yodoka is a fantastic coach to maybe help turn things around. But at this point, like aside from basketball fit, like the Celtics thought what he did was bad enough to, to suspend him for an entire year. And then the Nets mid suspension are like, let's make this guy the face of our team. <laughs> Something is very bizarre here. Either the Celtics overreacted or the Nets have like this incredible tolerance for just toxic assets and crazy distractions. I'll tell you, you know, I know that things haven't gone through, you know, it's the pending hiring of Ime Udoka, but it should be setting off alarms when the Celtics have suspended him for a year and they're just like, take him, you know, you're, you're ridding us of, of this controversy. You're ridding of this issue. Just take him. No holds barred, nothing, have him. So that should be sending off alarms and it's not. So let's do this. I mean, so far, you know, today we've talked about the selling of team, a little bit of sports business, a little bit of antitrust with baseball, a little bit of First Amendment, defamation stuff with Kyrie. I think it's now is as good a time as ever to talk about Themis, our review. I was talking to a student today who I will not mention them, but let's just say the bar did not go as well for them and they did not use Themis bar review the first time around. And I said, hey, listen, switch it up. You might want to go with Themis. I don't just say they're the top bar prep company in the entire galaxy for nothing. That means they're the best. So if you didn't use them the first time around and you're looking to try to uh, change your fortunes, Themis Bar Review, and call us up. I'm sure there's some special discounts for second-time test takers. Obviously, there is the, always the discount code for first-time test takers. So hit us up, and we'd be happy to talk through that. For more on our partnership with Themis, head to themisbar.com slash con detrimental. Landa, sometimes this happens. While we are recording the podcast, we have breaking news on the Kyrie Irving front. This is from Tim Bontemps at ESPN. The Nets, Kyrie Irving, and the Anti-Defamation League have put out a joint statement saying, in part, that Kyrie Irving and the Nets will each donate $500,000 towards causes and organizations that work to eradicate hate and intolerance in our communities. So I think the public would probably rather you just apologize and denounce the statements that you made towards anti-Semitism or in support of anti-Semitism. Like, money is money. Uh, I guess a million dollars certainly helps, but... You know, also not saying the comments or, you know, being maybe, uh, maybe I'll say like this. He didn't say them, but he was reckless in, in promoting something that had those thoughts. So Landis, if you or I, right, like what's a good, a good example. Okay. Like, let's say I put out a tweet saying like the Redeem team is the greatest sports documentary of all time. Like everyone should watch it. And the Redeem team, like I watch it. It's very good. But I think if I put that out, you would assume that I watched the whole thing and I endorsed and I liked every minute of that documentary. I think that's fair. When Kyrie Irving sends out that tweet, like saying that everybody should watch this movie and the movie contains comments that are anti-Semitic, it's not that much of a stretch to say that Kyrie Irving is endorsing those comments. So listen, I guess some people say like apologies are cheap and, you know, it's better that he's donating money, but like, I don't know, it's it doesn't have to be that complicated. You can't just throw money at a problem. I mean, that's uh, maybe that's a hot take, but I don't think that does anything for me. Why can't you do them both? You know, I read the statement. I was looking, I was looking for the buzz. I did a control F for anti-Semitism or Judaism or anything, uh, anything of the sort, no dice, no dice. So maybe by the time this podcast will come out, Kyrie will issue some type of apology, but it's not going to be there. And, you know, the, the sports side of this, independent of anything, discrimination based, whatnot, if you continue to speak out like this, 
no team is going to be ready, willing to sign you, let alone you're going to get a max deal from somebody. Maybe some team does, maybe just some team bets on it. But in 2022, all the different stories we're talking about with Dan Snyder and Kyrie Irving, certainly less likely to happen. Let's do this one. And then we have two interviews to get to. Michigan, Michigan State Land. Did you see what happened over the weekend? I did see what happened, and it was an unfortunate incident after a big, big loss for Michigan State and a season that is quickly, after such a promising year last year, quick a season that is quickly disappointing for the Michigan State Spartans. I was on the right side of a wager this past weekend on Michigan-Michigan State. It was, the game was not close at any point in time. I guess it was close kind of at halftime, so I, I take that back. It was it was relatively close. You know, by the third, fourth quarter, game's out of reach. So people, I'm, I'm sure everyone listening to this podcast has seen it. If you have not, pop on Twitter, pop on Google, and take a look at this video. So there are basically the entire Michigan State team is walking to their locker room, and it is a lot of white jerseys with green lettering. You see, originally it was reported as, as a scuffle, not a scuffle. There is a Michigan player that ends up on, on the ground. I'm not sure if he was pushed, punched, or if he just fell, tripped. But he looks like he's getting kicked on the ground. You know, we spent a lot of time on this show. We talked, you know, about the Devontae Adams push uh, of a photographer that resulted in criminal charges. I don't know if we talked about it here. I talked about it in my class with respect to this fan that got knocked over by Bobby Wagner on the sidelines. And this guy's this choker is like trying to sue Bobby Wagner. He's filing a police report. You know, okay, those are both things that happen on the field. I think both both of those can be, I don't know, they, they're pretty close to the action. And then obviously we talked about the Draymond Green and, uh, you know, stuff with, with Poole. Again, like teammates fight all the time. Like do teammates get punched and knocked out? No, but that literally happened like on the court during a practice. So these are all like adjacent to gameplay. This one with Michigan, Michigan State is after the game is over, right? Is they're in the tunnel and it's a player look like he's getting like mobbed, right? It's John, Coach Harbaugh explained it as a 10 versus one scenario. So this to me looks like something that that probably should result in criminal charges. It definitely is questionable at the very least and probably will be investigated. I know Michigan State is doing their own investigation. I'm sure Michigan is doing an investigation into what happened. There's multiple videos from, I think there's two videos from two different angles and it's bad. It's something that should not have happened in the heading back to the locker room, but it did. And we'll see what comes out of it. I think currently there's four players suspended from the incident pending the investigation and we'll see what else occurs. I'll just say it to say it, not because I'm on the fire Kevin Warren bandwagon anymore. I think he's he's kind of weathered that storm. But like Kevin Warren's the commissioner of the Big Ten. His son is a Michigan State player. So I think a lot of people were calling out like, hey, you know, Kevin Warren's got to be uh, you know vocal here. This stuff can't be tolerated. And then he allowed, as you mentioned, um, I think he allowed Michigan State to come up with that punishment to suspend four guys. Right. Uh, there, there's some disconnect between John, between Harbaugh saying it's 10 on one and then four players being suspended. You know, I'm not sure what to make of it, but when I watched that video, I mean, there was probably at least 10 guys right in that vicinity, but those 10 were not breaking it up. You know, maybe four guys actually made contact with the player on the ground, but none of the Michigan players were like holding each other back. It was just, you know, who, who can get their shots in? Yeah, I was, I'm uncomfortable by the whole situation, but they've actually, uh, one of the Michigan players that was involved in the incident, Michigan players, has retained a good friend of ours, Tom Mars, uh, to represent him in, in going after their, you know, going after these players. So, in terms of, you know, it's obviously assault is what the cause of action would be or battery, whatever state, whatever the terminology is in that jurisdiction. The other one that I thought was interesting, Landis from a legal side, kind of negligent security, right? Couldn't you go after maybe the stadium if you wanted to? 
Absolutely. I mean, where was the security there? I, I couldn't see much in the video at all. I saw some people, you know, that were not players trying to get involved in it, meaning trying to what looked like attempt to break it up. But otherwise, I didn't see anything coming from security or any security having any interaction. And, and there definitely should have been security there. I mean, there should have been security just based on the fact that this is a rivalry game, a big matchup, and obviously they went in the tunnel at two separate times, indicating that they knew there would be issues if they interacted in the tunnel. So there, there's definitely some issues there. The facts will come out at some point as to how this happened. Like, it, I, I think what happened is Michigan State went in the tunnel and then somehow two Michigan, it was like a handful of Michigan players, like maybe less than five, less than 10, mm-hmm. that also ended up there at the same time. I'm not exactly sure how that happened. If you watch the video, you can hear the band playing in the background. So clearly, like, the on-field festivities are going on. Maybe some players are interacting with the crowd and making their way slowly in. One of my students on Monday asked me, could there be some type of like negligent design lawsuit? I'm like, no, it's not really a negligent design. Like the, the thing wasn't designed improperly. It was just a procedure to allow these people in. And that's, I think, a security issue. You know, like maybe the security should be holding back the Michigan Wolverines players. Like, hey, Michigan State guys are in right now. Like that was where my issue spotting mind went. That there's probably a negligent security claim here. We'll see if Tom wants to do it, but obviously Tom is very involved with the Big Ten saga with us and the Nebraska stuff. So, you know, not that I'm rooting for necessarily either side here. Sometimes we end up knowing both people that represent each side, but I think Tom's got some um, some ammo here to deal with. So let's see, assault charges, negligent security. I mean, that, that would be bringing in the stadium, maybe the vendor, maybe an outside vendor. There's some pockets here, but at the end of the day, you need to show some type of harm. So we'll see uh, who's on the injury report next weekend, we'll say. Let's put a pin in that for a second. So... Yeah, Landis, I don't, I don't really have much else on our four topics. Uh, we have Matt Timpanic, who we mentioned is going to be on the show. We have a special interview with one of our sponsors, Or Horgan and Fledgy. Landis, when we got on, you asked me if I've been to Nebraska yet. I have not been. I'm going in about two weeks. And again, Or Horgan and Fledgy are sponsoring my trip out there. I always want to be mindful. Like I like covering sports stories. I always want to cover the legal side of it. No, not a shock to anybody. We have a lot of uh, lawyers, law students to listen to this podcast and a lot of people that work with lawyers and law firms. So I spoke to those guys, Connor Orr and, and uh, Tom Horgan. Tom's become now, you know, a, a close friend of mine. You know, I explained like you guys are starting a firm from scratch. Like I just joined a new firm. You know, Landis, you're how many years out of school now? You're five years uh, out. Three years out. So like, you know, not a shock. And hopefully, my no one at my current law firm is listening to this. But like, I don't know. Like at some point, we've all had the thought like. You know, wouldn't it be cool to open up your own law firm? My firm now basically allows me to run, you know, I don't want to say run the sports department, but they allow me a lot of freedom. Okay, I haven't always had it at stages of my career. But when I spoke to, to Connor and Tom, you know, and, and you know, just obviously now sponsors and partners with us on the podcast, I asked them, you know, at some point I want you to come on and explain how you guys just left where you were. They were both at insurance defense firms and you guys just opened up your own shop and you decided to become registered sports agents and you're doing work with the University of Nebraska and representing athletes like how do you have like the the moxie, the gumption, people can fill in the blank, like to, to just do that? And like these guys, I think Connor and Tom both have kids. And I'm like, I just couldn't do that. Like I, I, I'd like work for the security of an established firm because if you open up your own firm, and it doesn't go well. It's going to harm your family much more than it otherwise would with debts and liabilities and all this fun stuff. Landis, let's let's pretend your current employer is not listening. Have you ever had that thought about opening up your own firm? 
I mean, I think everybody has that sort of dream of opening their own shop, working for themselves, doing their own thing and and taking the cases that they really want to take, um, not necessarily the cases that you have to take to keep the bills open, even though even though when you open your own shop, you probably have to do that as well. But I think everybody dreams of I'm years down the road, I got all the clients I want, I'm in the business I want to be in, and, and I'm doing my own thing working on my own. So yeah, I mean, it, it's everybody's dream. Um, and these guys, these guys actually went out and did it. So yeah, I mean, let's let's do this. So we're gonna have a fun conversation with them. I, I you know I spoke to them. See how it goes. We talk a little bit of college football, a little bit of um, their work with the collective space, which I find to be very interesting. It's very mysterious what, what work people do with the collectives. Um, and these guys, uh, you know, are, are pretty involved in that scene and doing a lot of work on the NC Hearings Fund. So yeah, without further ado, let us kick it over to my discussion with Connor Orr and Tom Horgan of Orr. Morgan and Fledgy. Tom and Connor, welcome to Conduct Detrimental. You guys are our first Nebraska guests. How about that? I am honored. You should be. And if the name Tom Horgan and Connor Orr sound familiar, those are the guys, Tom and Connor, and of course, Kyle Fledge that we keep talking about that sponsor our college sports segment. So the reason, obviously, that you guys are, are here today is to talk about your college sports practice. But I think we could talk a lot about some developments in the collective space. Guys, we have some new uh, NCA regulations that came out, how it's going to impact clinics around the country. I certainly have some thoughts on it. And maybe, time permitting, we could talk about our upcoming fun NIL event in the lovely state of Nebraska. I think that sounds like a fun, fun conversation. We're excited to have you here. We think that the uh, NIL panels come together really well. We've got some really bright minds involved. And, you know, I'm I'm excited for you to actually meet your uh, your Twitter harem of Husker fans. Um, my wife is slightly terrified for that to happen uh, both for uh, <laughs> alcoholic consumption purposes and potential talkers. So uh, we'll see what comes of it. Could be good. Yeah. Could be bad. At least on the first part there, uh, that, that's why they serve runs in the stadium, right? Get, get yourself cinnamon roll and some chili on the way in and then a hot runza right when you get in the stadium. Dan, yeah, do you even up. know what a runza is? I do know what a runza is. I know All they're right. green and yellow. I understand the, I, I get tagged and stuff. <laughs> so I'm going to tell a quick story for our listeners. And then I, I want to get into over the course of our conversation, obviously, you know, the, the college sports landscape, we cover a lot of college sports uh, on our podcast. But, you know, we don't just have, you know, random people talking about it. Now we have two licensed Nebraska sports agents that are, you guys are working in the collective space. You're working in the NCAA hearing space. So, you know, obviously want to hear about your experience in that regard, too. And then obviously, you know, not so long ago, you created your own law firm. So we're certainly going to have a lot of lawyers, law students that are interested in how, you know, three pretty young guys decided to, to kind of bet on themselves. But here's the story. Tom, Connor, you guys know this. I'm going to give the very, very short version. Once upon a time, Nebraska, eight Nebraska players sued the Big Ten for the right to play college football during the COVID season. There had been talk between Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields about signing these like COVID liability waivers because these guys were 18 and they wanted to play. But COVID liabilities don't really, you know, the waivers don't really matter if there's no college football to be played. So when the Big Ten canceled, then there was a kind of groundswell among parents asking for questions. And eight brave Nebraska players, I think I can say that, basically decided to sue the conference for the right to play football. So we covered it very closely on our show. And the reason I got connected, I guess, to both of you guys was through our coverage of that case. A lot of people spoke. Connor, you and I didn't know each other, but we knew some of the same people. And then, Tom, you didn't know this, but we have a mutual friend, Eric Harris. Shout out to Eric if he's listening who was like, you're obsessed with Nebraska. Like, I have a friend from Nebraska. And, you know, then the marriage was met. So I was at, speaking of Runza, I was at a uh, law school talk yesterday uh, at Emory Law School. And someone in the crowd goes, Dan, I just want to thank you for your service. 
Nebraskans everywhere are very happy that we're covered for the case. So, <laughs> hey. so people are wondering of the connection. That's it. It doesn't get that doesn't get more complicated than that. We covered a Nebraska <laughs> lawsuit. Nebraska was appreciative. And that leads to our conversation today with two Nebraska sports lawyers. You know, actually, shout out to Mike Flood and Pat Cooper for their pleadings there, because I completely stole their ideas from those pleadings <laughs> and used them successfully in another case. So thanks to you for, for blowing it up online. I do think that that was an, an important case, and I think they did a really good job. I think there's some good attorneys involved, and you covering it as an attorney slash Twitter journalist, I think you killed it. So Twitter journalist is good. If you called someone a Twitter lawyer, that's actually fighting words. So let's do this. I think where we should start, there's obviously a lot of stuff in the college front. But what I'm, you know, we provide practical advice on our show. Connie, you said something that I, I joke about a lot. So you guys, obviously, and I, I want you to talk about how you guys opened up your own firm, but like, you know, part of lawyering, right, is a lot of just understanding the space, understanding how to guide clients appropriately. And then sometimes, right, sometimes like in high school and college, they tell you that you can't plagiarize, but in law, it's kind of almost like, yes, don't reinvent the wheel. Yes, let's just take this, change the address, change the dates. I, I feel like that's fine. That's allowed in Nebraska too. I especially liked how they put the pedal to the metal in that case, right? You know, they basically the, the leverage was getting the discovery within like a 10 day period, right? Because basically we had an unprecedented time and, and you had a whole bunch of emails that were exchanged that everybody and their brother who practices law knows that they're not going to have protections in holding those back which I, I think you highlighted really well as some of those started to come out that it became obvious that they were using different channels to communicate because there were certain things that the chancellors and presidents didn't want publicly known. What that is, nobody knows, because obviously we now know the result is that they played football that year. Yeah, and I think that, you know, in that case, if you're, to get back to your question, practically speaking, if if it works, it works. I mean, the Mike Floods of the world did a fantastic job with knowing that the Big Ten did not want things released. That was the simple fact. They did not want those votes out to the public sphere. And so they just filed motions and got it out there, right? Yep. There was nothing that they did that was so unique that couldn't be undone or not done again. So what they did was just they played their cards right and they said, here, we just want to see these minutes. What's the big deal? And the court played into it. So it worked out. Nebraska saved college football. The rest of the country and all colleges around should be forever grateful for that. Yes. If people want to know more about the Nebraska stuff, they literally made a documentary about it. And um, <laughs> I might know someone that was in that documentary. They should have called you guys for that. But uh Listen, we're, we're talking practical skills about lawyering. And, and then let's, let's well, we can kind of transition to how you opened up your firm. But like at a certain point, like what was Mike Flood doing? Mike Flood, uh, who was the lawyer that represented the eight Nebraska players. You know, we're talking about practical stuff. I have no idea how much you charge them, but I know that I know the name Mike Flood. I'm not a Nebraska attorney. I know that name. So sometimes like we were talking right before we started recording about like what the right rate to charge someone a retainer is, right? You want to charge just enough, right, to get them in the doors. What did Flood do? He would threaten to take emergency depositions. And that's because we later learned that like the Big Ten might have been very shady with their deletion and like secret channels that they were having communications on and automatic deletion stuff. At least as a rumor and innuendo. So yeah, Mike Flood's a creative guy. I'm sure he's a Nebraska fan. And sometimes you can blend your passion, you know, outside of the practice with your real legal practice and know that guys like Kevin Warren and different administrators didn't want to go under oath. It's not really protected. So I say all of that to say that I am in one sense, I started a new job. I am at a firm that my name is not on it. You guys started your own firm. Your names are on it. You make the rules. You guys get to have all the creative strategy decisions. So like, I don't know, walk, walk me through a day in the life of Orr, Oregon and Flengy. You guys just like 
throwing paper balls at each other. You're playing practical jokes, putting staplers in jello. Is that, that what goes on there? Well, to touch on what you were just saying in, in terms of practical advice and, and practical real world situations that we found ourselves in is the first thing, especially in the sports art world, is that how do we price representation of a student athlete, right? What are we worth at the end of the day? Are we drafting? Are we not drafting? Are we reviewing contracts? And what's everyone else charging, right? So that is a, a very, very practical real world thing that kind of falls into the sports world arena is that, well, these student athletes probably aren't making tons and tons and tons of money on a per contract basis. So we're doing it on a per contract basis, or are we doing it on some sort of agreement that, you know, let's just say unwritten percentage, but long story short, the practical side of sports law is just that it is law. On a day-to-day basis, though, here at the firm, we're working pretty hard. We're getting in early and leaving late. The wives probably aren't too happy with us at this point in our lives. You guys lives, both have but... kids too, right? My crazy yes. both have kids? Yes, and Connor has two. I have two. One, one just recently born. Again, we were talking about some stuff offline, but I know that you guys are insurance defense guys. I, once upon a time, was also an insurance defense guy for six years. So there's going to be a lot of people that get the bug for sports law and then they go to graduate and there's no jobs. And so you're talking to three people here who have made their way back to you know sports roles. I do stuff that has nothing to do with sports. I'm sure you guys do as well. But my practical training is as an insurance defense lawyer, taking depositions, uh, not being afraid to scare someone with a very you know intense lawyer letter with a preservation notice. And that's real practical lawyering. So like, I think maybe it would be helpful for you guys to speak, you know, to the transferable skills that you guys have seen from the world of insurance defense, which there are plenty of insurance defense jobs out there. I promise they're giving those things away, but it's, it's good experience. Yeah. And I, I think that's a really good point. I mean, I, there's a number of different areas in the law that actually touch on the sports law world. So, you know, for a, a lot of the kids, and, and this is something that I really want to talk about in the NIL panel as well that we have coming up is that they're stepping into the real world, right? These are kids who are college-age kids who are still on an educational route, but by participating in NIL, they're getting into the real world. They're signing real contracts that have real ramifications. They're selling products. They're in the stream of commerce, right? So you've got potential for trade name, trademark infringement, the potential for, and then, you know, what could amount to an insurance claim for products liability, you know, so there's a lot of considerations that go into that. I mean, obviously the insurance defense world is a broad practice. You can get anything from a slip and fall to products liability to fire cases and a million different things in between. And I say that to say this, you know, a lot of these kids are coming into this without any representation and they're signing deals with ultimately what's on the other side, sophisticated businessmen and businesswomen that have millions, if not billions of dollars because those are the kind of people who have the expendable income to fund a lot of these deals that are truly sophisticated and understand the risk, but the kids don't, right? I certainly wouldn't have in college. You know, it's it's not something that I think I even fully grasped until I was outside of school and actually practicing law and like seeing, you know, the insurance defense world, the litigation world, the bodies have already hit the floor. You're seeing the aftermath ramifications. So, you know, there's everything from corporate formations and business planning and estate planning that can come in here because you've got kids who are making serious money that also have at any moment could blow a knee or end up like Alex Smith and you've got a completely mangled leg, might not ever play again. They're making serious money now. So estate planning comes into play because you could build up a nest egg right now while you're in school, while you don't have significant expenses. You're seeing operations like Iowa State is coming up with the Austin money. From what I've heard, Iowa State wants to put that into like 401ks. 
essentially for the kids, which I think is a nice gesture, but, and I'm not a tax guy, maybe you've got some tax attorney experience, but I'm pretty sure that that's, unless you have a deferred compensation setup, which I don't know if you can have with essentially independent contractors, they're not employees, that's a taxable event. So there's all kinds of different areas right. of law that this is hitting. And I don't think we're going to realize just how many different areas it hits until something goes really, really wrong. This is where I wanted to take this. And again, this is just a, I don't know how we'll phrase this, but a conversation amongst three sports lawyers, three. I went to LinkedIn, as Tom knows, I'm pretty anal with my attorney marketing and different stuff. Like, I'm like, I do all this different stuff, consulting, this thing, that thing. I'm like, what am I really doing? I'm like, we're really just kind of problem solving. So I went to LinkedIn because right. I'm a crazy person. And I wrote on my byline that I'm a problem solver because like, that's what really lawyers do. Do you guys know uh, Tom Mars? He represents a lot of coaches. Yes. He calls himself like a detective. And I'm like, taking that too. Problem solvers, detective, like that's, that's all we're really doing. And I think in order, you know, at least in sports, there's going to be people that are obsessed with, um, you know, uh, music and entertainment law. Like that's just not where my mind goes. My mind goes to sports, but you kind of have to be obsessed with the industry to solve and see those issues. So like, that's a, that's a great one. Right. I'm, and I'm hearing at least the schools that I'm talking to, they're like, well, and I talk to small schools. I don't, I don't really generally talk to power five schools. That's it's your territory over in, uh, in uh, Nebraska country. Yeah. Like some small schools, like they can't compete for the collectives, right? They don't want to use a collective, which I, and I want to talk about collectives, but they're like, we need to maximize our Alston money. Like, how can we do this? So some of them are going to go ahead and create like, and Alston is like the academic, there's no more caps on academic related compensation. So it's a fancy way of saying like, guys, if we were running, you know, whatever, we we'll create OHF law university, we're trying to re recruit athletes. You know what I might do? I might create a, a really fancy like esports class and I would require every student to buy the television and the video game system and like beautiful lighting in the background. And we would pay for it as the university. And hopefully my football players, my basketball players, and everyone signs up for that class. That's how you can get really creative with Austin money. But like we as sports fans, like the lawyering goes hand in hand. So we're solving problems, right? Maybe school's problem is recruiting, right? Those guys need lawyers too. But I think it speaks to all we're doing is creative lawyers. You can be an insurance defense guy, your sports guy all depends on mastering your industry. And I agree with that, Dan. I think that the interesting take on the whole, what you just said with the small schools and the large schools is that the large schools are all going for a very large pool of money and a large collective with a lot of negotiating power, right? The students want the money and the collective want whatever it may be, the rights or the performance of the athletes through some sort of contractual obligation. So we actually have an interesting kind of, I guess I'd call it a case study here where there's what's called a mid-level school that is kind of in between that thought process. Do we go the collective route? Do we set one up or do we go the route where we're going to do it on a small school basis? You know, we're not in some sort of major, major conference where there's tens of millions of dollars being made by TV deals, but at the same time, they want to be players. They want to figure out how can we still recruit these athletes from different areas and not have to worry about the other, you know, power conference schools going in and being able to offer hundreds of thousands of dollars, quote unquote offering, because it's not technically the school offering, but the collective offering them to go play at a school that's loosely affiliated with. So it's an interesting topic to get into. Let's stay here for a second. The collective work I find to be very interesting, that these bodies, after not existing for like 100 years, and boosters and alumni reporting their money direct to the school, they're going to now this like 
intermediary in the middle. So I have all these questions. It's like, you know, how do the collectives really work? Like, are there lawyers behind them? It's like, in one sense, you could be at a power five school like Nebraska and you could have a collective. You could have enough money where you have all these rich donors that want to create an entity that they can somewhat exert some level of control over. More more control, you'd think, than than they could at the previous school level. And then smaller schools, right? There's an entity and, uh, you know, I've, I've hear of different organizations pitching universities like, hey, you don't need to create a collective. Like, I'll be your collective and I'll take a percentage here and a percentage here. So maybe you guys can speak to it. My understanding is that you guys do work with some collectives. Is that is that accurate? Right now, since the players, the players can't be employees for the schools, all of these collectives that are forming now are, you know, more or less your unofficially official connection to the school. Now that's not, there's other collectives out there. There was one that came across my desk last week where they're more of a general collective that just wants to support the FCS ranks and the D1 AA ranks. So they're, they're very passionate about the smaller sports. So all the collectives are, is a collection of people, donors, boosters, you know, that, that have connections to various professionals that help an entity run for the purposes of supporting athletes that are, you know, related to a specific sport, specific school, or even now a, a specific level of competition. So since they can't be employees yet, think of it as that's who, you know, we're negotiating a lot of the deals with for the players. But, you know, there's a lot of this stuff, too, where it, it doesn't make much sense to me why some of the collectives are running the bigger individual deals through the collective because it's, it's completely unnecessary. It's, it's really only exists for a fundraising purpose most of the time. Right. You know, and uh, there's different forms of collectives, nonprofits, for profits you know, things like that. But so some of them have slightly different purposes, but at the same time, really all it is, is power and numbers. So it's just another potential referral source for deals for the kids. Where we saw a problem uh, is that you see a number of these collectives are set up where the kids are supposedly being represented by the collective, but the collectives also negotiating on behalf of said multi-millionaire, multi-billionaire booster. Obviously, as you know, that's a conflict that could never be waived right? Because you don't have an arm's length transaction. So that's where when we came in, we said, look, not only is it better for the athlete, it's going to be better long-term because you have less likelihood of, of there being a blow up or issues on the backside. If each side has their own competent representation, you negotiate terms, deduce it to a contract and sign it, just like any other corporate transaction that's ever happened. This exactly where we are right now, I just, I find to be so fascinating. And we're going to have all time, I'm sure, to review this. I'm, I'm sure we're going to have more concepts and more conversations that come up. But the NCA just released these new regulations really like, I don't know, within a couple of hours of us having our conversation today. We're recording uh, on Wednesday. And one item that, that caught my attention, as you guys know, I run the NIL Pro Bono Project at New York Law School. We are a law school that, you know, when businesses come, I literally just got a call from an agency that needs help with something. You know, they come to us, you know, we're we're basically like a conduit. We're just trying to help people at different schools. We do not have sports. It's New York Law School is just a school that exists without sports. And there's no university, there's no undergrad. And the NCAA had some interesting guidance today. So Connor, to the point that you just raised, like, okay, like, should the collective be representing these guys? Like, probably not. That sounds weird. Like, there's some issues of conflict of interest. There had been a number of schools, I think Indiana, Wisconsin, Louisville, a handful of schools that had created their own clinics within the law school and designed, and Minnesota has one, Tarrant, who's uh, one of our contributors. And those were designed to help the athletes out on a pro bono basis. And it was really law students and, you know, alumni that were helping. 
the NCAs basically outlawed that. They said, you're not allowed to help sports students if you can't help the general student body with the same type of activity. So again, kind of like a head-scratching move by the NCA. doesn't really affect us at New York Law School, but any other law students that were looking to, hoping to help out their undergrad and their sports teams, the NCA has put the, the kibosh in it. So isn't it amazing I, how the NCAA yeah. can just run afoul of everything that you know you're you're told to hold dear as a lawyer and serve the community and do pro bono work? The NCAA somehow just finds a way to to spit in the face of what we're taught and say no more pro bono work, even though it's for student athletes and it's a new and emerging market and no one knows what's really going on here. But these kids can't get any pro bono work. It just doesn't make any sense to me, Dan. Honestly, Tom, we could talk about this for hours on hours. The part that I want to make sure we hit in our uh, brief time that we have remaining, again, you guys are sports agents. You're doing work with the collectives. The topic that that came up again in these new NCA regulations that the you know NCA's new NIL policy, at least on a, on a very big picture level, and this is not a shock to anyone that's been following this space, the NCA no longer wants to be in the business of punishing athletes that essentially the policy is going to be one to help, you know, guide schools and maybe put a school in line, or I'm not sure how it would work with the collective, maybe a lawsuit would happen, but they don't want to punish athletes for, you know, maybe any mistakes or misgivings or indiscretions in the NIL space. So Tom Connor, I'm, I'm told again, per sources, my source has been pretty good. You guys do some work in the NCA hearing space as well. I've handled it at the high school ranks and at the college ranks. We've had players who've been suspended for this, that, and the other, you know, teams that want to fight them. Most of the time, just like anything else, you've got arguments on either side and the truth somewhere in the middle. So it's just a matter of getting to that, you know, so it's not much different than any other litigation, except for you're in an administrative hearing instead of in a courtroom. And discovery conducted primarily pertaining to sports instead of sore necks, divorces, and death. It's a little bit, even though, you know, players and parents and stuff are going through a hard time. For me, it's a little bit more enjoyable when I'm talking hockey, football, baseball, instead of, you know, this person's maimed for the rest of their life. So we do handle a a few of those things and we've successfully handled a few. One in particular, I had a uh, high school hockey team here in town that I played for. They're a travel team. They actually won the national championship a few years back. And the year after their national championship, they had some weird changes to the transfer rules in a a team that existed, then didn't exist, then existed again. And you had a administrative board, administrative body over the entire high school league who tried to ban those players for half a season based upon some sort of retroactive implementation of transfer rules. We were able to successfully overturn that. It was pretty cool to say that we got, they just happened to be three of the best players on the team though. So, you know, that administrative bodies out of the Hawkeye state, shall we say, so that they don't look too kindly on us here on the other side of the river. So I think there might've been some, a little bit of politics behind it, driving it as well. I speak Nebraska, so I understand uh, the Hawkeye state. I understand, guys, how about this for a fun story? Was that a, this speaking event recently and someone said, I'm Husker, thanks for all you're doing for the Huskers and whatnot. I go, yeah, and we hate the Jaskers. And she's like, what are Jaskers? And I'm like, uh, <laughs> I got to check your card because I should know more than you. A Jasker is a person who um, roots for Creighton basketball and Husker football. They still are very prevalent here. It seems as though the J part has grown and the skirt part has slimmed down a little bit recently due to the fact that Creighton is pre-ranked ninth right now in the AP poll. And, um, that, and fun um, fact, Nebraska ball, Nebraska ball, as a, as they call it down there, right, has yeah. never made the NCAA tournament. Not even lost in the first round. They've just never made it. So yeah. we they uh, have won the NIT though. 
And they do have a heck of a former player that was on that team that's now a pretty darn good NBA coach. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm told Nebraska players end up being good coaches. Uh, one of them just went to the Super Bowl. But, guys, for sure, listen, I'm, I'm all about marketing here. We have our panel on November 18th. I'm flying down. Guys, gonna, we're going to have a lot of fun. We're trying to sell shirts. Nebraska ball, undefeated since uh, 1600. How about that? In the tournament. In the tournament. They have not lost a game in the tournament. You might be able to sell one or ten of those, but that's about <laughs> it. There's, there's not a lot of Nebraska ball fans here. Connor's one of the ten, I think. I take that back. There's no. there's a lot of Nebraska basketball fans, but I would say that Creighton kind of rules the roost here. I enjoy rooting against Creighton uh, come tournament time. My, my Nebraska followers <laughs> enjoy that. I'll tell you the same thing I told Rob and Travis on Doc Talk. I'm kind of a non-traditional J-skirt, right? So your traditional J-skirt, the reason they've got such a bad rap is because you know they cheer for Husker football in the fall, but then they talk trash on Nebraska basketball. I'm, I'm the Rob Lowe of non-traditional J-skirts. I just enjoy a good athletic competition, and I'm in full support of any and all local universities, Nebraska universities, any athletics, it could be football, basketball, baseball, badminton, and anything in between. Don't care. So you're like wearing like the NFL hat to the games. I caught that. Gentlemen, it's fantastic having you on. And again, these guys are or Horgan and Flengy. Uh, I'm going to say it because it's, uh, I think I'm allowed to say it. the top law firm in the entire state of Nebraska. I think I think I can say that. Um, the well, we're the top sports law <laughs> podcast, so you guys are the top law firm. I don't there think I've said go. anything well, factual, so no one can sue me. Okay, boys, fantastic having you on, and I'm looking forward to seeing you in person in about thanks, Dan. three weeks. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, really Dan. Looking look forward, forward to it. it. Everyone okay. come out to the panel. So that was Connor Orr and Tom Horgan of Orr, Horgan, and Flungy. Again, looking forward to seeing those guys uh, out in Nebraska the weekend of the 18th and 19th. So I know we do have some slash a lot of Nebraska listeners. I'm going to be out there. We'll see. I don't want to divulge anything. I'm going to have some fun. So I'm going out there. I'm not with the wife and kids. So we'll see how it goes. I'm a little nervous, but um, I guess it is what it is. Landis, let's let's do this again. Well, this is a big episode. We got a lot of ground to cover. We're covering really all sports, a little college football, baseball, basketball, football, all over the place. We did mention that Matt Timpanic was going to come on to break down the, the kind of the latest domino in the Snyder saga. I don't know. Like I kind of talked about it before, but like I tend to think that this is the again talking about like dominoes. I I tend to think that this is not it. Like this is the federal investigation. There were supposed to be state investigations going on, and I'm hearing that those are still pending as well. Yeah, this doesn't seem to be the last of it. I mean, and just go back and think how how much has already occurred in the Snyder saga, and the NFL has yet to force him to sell the team, and more could come out at any time. And this might not be the last investigation. It could be. There should be some state stuff going on as well. We'll see if that actually occurs. But this federal investigation is now a biggie. And we'll see what comes of it. We were talking right before with like Bezos and all these different owners. Like when you go to acquire a team, and I, and I had done a lot of reading around the Broncos sale, and you're buying into the revenue, but you're buying an asset. And the asset can have some issues with it, right? Some some warts on it. So you do your due diligence. And kind of have to make an assessment of like, hey, is the organization that I'm about to buy about to get hit with gigantic fines from from like the attorney general's office? And again, we, we were going to talk about it with Matt, but like there's alleged that millions of dollars, and obviously when you're talking about buying a team for 10, 5 billion or 10 billion, whatever the number is, maybe a couple million doesn't really matter. But, you know, may, maybe there's going to be prohibitions on the type of work you can do. Maybe there's going to be you know, a certain amount of money you have to pay back. And maybe there's some type of punitive assessment that's that's put on the team 
all of a sudden, these investigations become very relevant to the valuation of the team and who's interested in it. Maybe this is such a toxic asset that someone doesn't want to own the Washington Commanders, like Jeff Bezos, who's made of $100 billion. I promise you, another team is going to make itself available. Maybe that's going to be Seattle Seahawks or the uh, you know the impending Seattle basketball team. And then you know maybe Bezos is going to want them, right? I have no idea. Maybe Bezos makes too much sense. But again, you have the federal government and the DMV, all these different state attorney generals that are looking into the team, in addition to Congress, maybe some owner is going to be like, you know what? I don't want to be anywhere near this team. I'm going to pick another one. Um, and they're, they're going to come up, right? Just the, the Broncos sold earlier this year. So maybe that's the move. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, you think about it, if they do start to, because these would be fines against the organization. And you're talking about, like we were talking about ownership interest earlier and part of the sale you're talking these guys, Bezos and other other people that would be buying this team. They're smart business people. They're not going to be people that don't know what they're doing. And if they were potentially buying it, they would try to put those fines on Dan Snyder and say, "Hey, you need to pay these fines before we'll buy the organization." But is he going to have any any interest in that? Um, they'll have to evaluate all these things and what could occur if fines were to occur, or penalties were to occur. So I'll, I'll give a quick shout out, and then we'll we'll get over to Matt. Jason Morin and I, people I think on the podcast now know Jason, one of our, our OG conduct people, but we wrote Westlaw today reached out and they gave us like five hard hitting questions and shout out to Josh Newmanville, who's over at Westlaw, who I know listens to the podcast. He's, you know, helped put together those articles. But the last question he asked us was like, if Snyder sells the team, could he be purged of any legal liability? And we said, no, like if Snyder was running the ship, he's not like immune because he sells the team. So obviously we got into that a little bit with Matt in our conversation, but yeah, important to know, like just selling the team doesn't absolve you of potential criminal or civil liability. I don't, you know, and again, like this is the tip of the iceberg. We've never had an entity like the federal government poking around. Yes, Congress came in and Snyder gave some behind the scenes deposition that we don't really know what he said, what he didn't say. We don't know if Snyder cooperated. But now all of a sudden, if you don't cooperate with the federal government, it's a lot different. I want to say the federal investigators, they're working off of the you know Congress's findings. Congress couldn't really do much to punish Snyder, but guess what? Like the feds can, the attorney general can, the, the state attorney generals can. So there's some moxie, some gumption behind it when the federal government gets involved. Those are good words. Without further ado, let's kick it over to our resident district attorney, Matt Timpanic, to cover all things Washington commanders. Our resident district attorney is the only man that we could call for this story. Matt, the news is that the federal government, the feds in Virginia, are investigating Dan Snyder for financial improprieties. I have my thoughts, but I thought it best to give it to you to give us your breakdown from your background and, of course, as our resident district attorney. What we're looking at here is a situation stemming from the Congress's investigation into the Washington Redskins, then Washington football team, and now Washington commanders. Part of the allegation is, is that what we've known, that the Washington commanders have been keeping two books one that is the actual numbers, and another one where it's actually what they're reporting to the league. Why? Because part of what ticket revenue is based on how much you bring in, and they have to share that with the rest of the league. If they underreport the numbers, what's actually being provided to the league, they get to keep more and not give less to the league. What we're having here is definitely a bunch of things. I'd have to say wire fraud would be part of it, potentially RICO charges, maybe even racketeering. It depends on how deep this actually goes. Tax evasion, potentially as well. The thinking being is when you're doing your taxes with the federal government, you cannot say this is what is actually what our revenues are to the federal government 
and make it different than what it actually is to the NFL. Because I would have to think that part of what is actually being reported to the league has to be the same as what you're reporting to the league. There's a couple of things. The cooking the book things, I think, you know, we've, we've talked about it. That's, that's, I think, what sets Dan Snyder's allegations apart from anything that Jerry Jones is alleged of or, or really anyone else. It's not, it's not just like bad personal indiscretions. It's stealing money, right? But, but we should be clear, it's not just stealing money from other owners. If it's the cooking the book stuff and you're, and you're stealing money from owners and revenue sharing, that's one thing. Where this got difficult, why we've always been looking at these state attorney general investigations. I've, I've never, and we've never talked about it here, about the federal government investigating, but it makes sense because people are crossing state lines to go to these events. I'm going to read part of ESPN's article, and the person that broke the story is obviously Don Van Natta, who we just had on the podcast 48 hours ago. So he insinuated to us, Matt, that news was coming. I thought it was the news that Snyder was going to sell. <laughs> Apparently, maybe it was both, but... Here we go. It says, according to other testimony, financial misconduct included making it intentionally difficult for season ticket holders to recoup refundable deposit money, counting some of those leftover funds as a different kind of revenue that doesn't need to be shared with the league. So and then it's also ticket sharing. But it, it, apparently at one, I'm reading this just another part. At one point in 2016, the team retained up to five million from 2000 season ticket holders. So there's two elements of this. It's basically consumer fraud, which is one. So it's fraud against consumers. And the other one is fraud against the owners. I imagine, right, the federal government's concerned about both, but they're more concerned about the consumer fraud part of that. Is that your perception as well? I think so, because you're stealing from everyday people. Remember, the stadium is in Andover, Maryland. The Washington commanders are actually the Maryland commanders, if it were. This is actually being investigated by the Eastern District of Virginia. Like, I think you're spot on about talking about the interstate commerce element. Obviously, fans are coming from Virginia or D.C., and they're going into Maryland to actually go to the game. And that's where this alleged consumer fraud embezzlement actually occurs. By doing that, it's like you're keeping $5 million. It's like, okay, all right, now people are entering into contractual agreements with you, and you're straight up lying in them. And like I said, RICO and racketeering wire fraud are all primed for this type of situation. Remember, this is just an investigation by the U.S. Attorney's Office. But remember, as we've said in other cases, Brett Favre, Eric Kay, the list goes on and on. The U.S. Attorney's Office doesn't just start investigating it on their own. Very rarely. Usually, they have to get a referral from either the FBI, the SEC, or the IRS, all of which would probably be prime candidates to actually refer to this case to them. Hey, this is my investigation. This is what I've turned up with. All right, do you want to convene a grand jury and unseal an indictment? That's usually what happens. The U.S. Attorney's Office usually doesn't just decide to start an investigation on their own. I'm going to give you another piece of this, and I tend to agree with you, but I, I'm going to just read, and you can respond to this, Matt, in, in, your own, in your own way. You know, again, we spent a lot of time with Don and Seth and Tisha last episode speaking about how Snyder's lawyer is responding to this. So, you know, John Brownlee went on a different show, not our show, Mike Florio's show, and essentially said... ESPN is making this up. This is not true. We have mechanisms to go after ESPN. I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but that he was insinuating that ESPN was making up the story. And it's almost verbatim what Robert Sarver's camp said following the Baxter Home story. So we, we spoke about it a lot at length. And wouldn't you know, they this Fed story comes out and they ask for a quote from you know the commanders. They don't respond, but they give a statement from this attorney, John Brownlee, quote, it is not surprising that ESPN is publishing more falsehoods based solely on anonymous sources given today's announcement. We are confident that after these agencies have had a chance to review the documents and complete their work, 
they will come to the same conclusion as, this, as the team's internal review, that these allegations are simply untrue. So this is a very hastily written statement. ESPN is publishing more falsehoods. What's the falsehood part that the U.S. Attorney General is investigating it? So what what is it, right? And then the rest of that statement, right, is that when they have had a chance to review the documents, we're confident they're going to come out the right way. So is ESPN lying that the feds are investigating it? Or do you think that the feds are going to come up with nothing? So I think, Matt, this is where I want to take this, right? Let's say they are investigating, which, again, I don't think ESPN is wrong. I'm not someone that thinks the mothership is investing all this time and money and paying and, and having these huge you know, investigative reporters on staff to be making up stories for clicks. That's not how they got to where they are. But let's say um, from point A to point B, you said it has to be referred by someone. What point or how long does this take typically to get from investigation to the time where you actually make a decision on whether charges are going to be pressed or not? Remember, I think it was back in April that they actually testified before Congress. We're now in November. That is plenty of time for this case, the documents that were requested and subpoenaed to actually make it to the hands of the FBI, IRS, SCC. And they've had time to comb over the documents that were presented, review the testimony and be like, we are making a recommendation to you that we think we have enough for a minimum a search warrant, if not to convene a grand jury. I have to think that the ESPN would not run this article if it wasn't true. Why? Because it's so easily could be debunked. You call the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office in the Eastern District and they can say, that's not actually true. What you're likely going to get if you're one of the investigative reporters who've been on this, you call up the Eastern District. Is this going on? We do not comment on ongoing investigations as a matter of policy. That's as good as pretty much as a, yeah, that's actually what's going on. I have to think with the early report from Forbes magazine this morning that they were exploring the sale and then they released the statement. And then this afternoon we get this new bombshell. It's I have to think that the Schneiders leaked this to Forbes to get out ahead of the story. And so that people were like, oh, they're going to re- ready to sell. And then the real story drops, if it were. No, they're being investigated for corrupt financial irregularities, which is just code for fraud and corruption, if it were. People should read this new report from from Don, and not just because now he's a friend of the show, just it's it's crazy, right? Like we, we've talked about this now for a couple months, but like Jason Friedman, the longtime vice president of sales and customer service, he was one of the people that provided evidence to um, the congressional hearings. And he talked about how the people internally would say that this was saving like juice, it was they, they used this term juice as a way the, that they were moving revenue around internally. So, yeah, it sounds like fraud, right? And called financial improprieties. You know, that's the term they want to go with. But I don't know. This is going back, you know, 2013 was that Kenny Chesney concert. There's a 2014 Navy Notre Dame football game where they alleged that the money was moved around. So, you know, it, again, um, I, I think you've nailed it, Matt. I think that this was a leak by Snyder to Forbes for whatever reason. So he could try to get ahead of the narrative. Well, I was exploring selling anyway, so I guess I might as well now. No, I mean, the the real optics, if you're looking at it, is that he knew this was coming down the pike. I'm sure he's pretty connected. And I'm sure the attorney general's office might have even had some outreach to him or or different employees and somehow it got back to him. Matt, I know we're kind of pressed for time. Any final thoughts on on this story as it's continuing to develop? Part of what it is, I I have to thank by Dan Schneider opening the door to a potential sale. One of the conditions he might negotiate with the league is, I'll go away quietly and you promise not to sue me for what is likely to be turned up is that we potentially hosed you out of hundreds of millions of dollars or whatever it is over the last, I don't know how many years they've been doing it. 
Why? Because it's clear that he was not only stealing from, it's likely based on these allegations, that he was stealing from the consumer, but he's also stealing with the owners. And his leverage is like, I don't have to sell. I can take this as far as I can go, and you're going to have to do what's necessary to take me down. Or you, I'll, you guys waive your right to collect from me, and I'll go away quietly, and you can get someone like Jeff Bezos to buy the team, which is what you want anyway probably in the $6 billion range. But with this leak that they're also facing potential charges, that number is just going to go down and down as the Schneiders become more and more desperate, especially if they face an actual federal criminal indictment. Let's close on this. I think at the end of the day, right, we've talked about why wouldn't Snyder want to go, maybe Snyder would sell voluntarily to not get forced by the NFL out with this uh, NFL tribunal and he would go quietly just like Jerry Richardson did once upon a time, one of the Panthers or, you know, Robert Sarver in, in the NBA circles. You don't want to get dragged through the mud by your brethren in the NBA and maybe you get out ahead of it. What selling the team does not do, it doesn't take away any type of criminal liability you might have had. So, yeah, I guess in a sense, like he could say, oh, I'll sell the team. Don't worry, guys. Don't worry, feds. Like I'm, I'm gone. Uh, goodbye. I have my five billion dollars. That's not going to do anything here. So mind you, this is the feds investigating. Last I checked, you know, the DMV area, D.C., Maryland, Virginia, all had the state attorney generals that are investigating, in addition to the congressional report that's supposed to come out. So this report, the feds report, is the only one that was not really on my radar personally. So last I checked, right, four other reports still uh, yet to be released to us. I don't know, Matt. Uh, we got a lot to be looking for here. A lot, A lot of meat on that bone, as they say. Couldn't agree more. Matt, well, always a pleasure having you on. And uh, yeah, we'll get you back as the story continues to develop. Thanks, Dan. We do it each and every week. It is the Better Edge betting segment with uh, our guy, Conlon Farrell. And when we started this, I didn't know how successful Conlon would be. But for about a year, he's been telling me he's the betting guy, the sports betting guru. And what do you know? He is 5-1-1 one, and one through the season. So Conlon, do you do your lap here? What do you got for us this week? Well, listen, Dan, I'm not going to sit here and pat myself on the back. I'll leave that to the lawyers here at Conduct. But I will say uh, Billy Walter is one of the most successful sports gamblers on the planet. Hits about 66% of his bets. 5-1-1, one, one, just a little bit higher than that clip. So all I can say here is you do the math, right? But you can count on death, taxes, and Conlon delivering on the better edge corner with you each and every week. So let's roll into it, right? Last weekend, Geno Smith and the leading division, Seattle Seahawks. So this week, the Seattle Seahawks are road punch plus two and a half. Lucky performed to his ability this week. Some miraculous catches, one in the end zone with one hand. Spectacular. But again, I just don't have confidence in that offense basically maintaining and uh, being a well-oiled machine. However, the Seahawks are uh, confident in what they do. They know their identity. So I'm going there right there. Seattle Seahawks plus two and a half this week in Arizona. I like them Colin, listen, I'm very proud of you. Gino Smith uh, is a New York guy. He played for the Jets once upon a time and the Giants. Mm -hmm. I do remember when he broke uh, Eli Manning's streak. So we were riding with you, Colin. We were riding with the Seattle Seahawks. Colin, what do we say? Plus two? Plus two and a half right now. Plus two and a half. And you can only get that special line on Better Edge because as we've talked about, Better Edge is the social betting platform. The lines are offered by you and I, Colin. They're offered by the people and they're not offered by the house. So you have someone that feels pretty confident about a line, you can adjust it as you see fit, adjust the juice up, and it's an open marketplace. So head to Better Edge, use our promo code CONDUCT for $20 for free, no strings attached. And yeah, Colin, here is to you getting another win in the bag for us and Conduct Detrimental. You're right, Dan. Listen, the Conduct Detrimental family, again, you guys provide 
excellent legal insights on all things uh, sports law, but I want to put uh, cash in the people's pockets. Inflation's going up, and you know what I mean? I'm a man of the people, so happy to do it. Alan, excellent job, as always. I don't know if we have anything else to add. We're going to keep an eye on a couple of these stories, the Josh Primo story, depending on when people are listening to this. It's supposed to be a, a press conference on Thursday. Of all people, the accuser in the Josh Primo case, that's the guy in the Spurs, the 12th overall pick who's accused of exposing himself. Of all people, who did she retain? Tony Busby. So we're not we're not quite losing the Busby saga yet. Busby, obviously, the old attorney for uh, the Sean Watson accusers. So Busby finding ways to stay relevant for better or for worse. And, you know, we'll see. Okay, Landis, anything else that we didn't hit you wanted to cover? No, I've hit it all. It's been a great night. Great week. Sounds good for Dan Wallach, myself, Landis. Great job. Matt Timpanic, our friends over at Orr, Horgan, and Flengy. We will see you next time on another episode of Conic Detrimental. 